there's a couple weeks, like three weeks ago, I'm at church with all you guys, and I, I leave, I walk out, and I'm like, man, this is, this is a good Sunday. I was like feeling really good. I was like, the spirit is here in this place. Um, and I was feeling like, you know, it was a challenging Sunday for sure, a little bit challenging, but for the most part, like, everything was all right. So I shoot out this email when I get home to Ben and um, Jen and Mira and Caroline. I'm like, thank you guys so much. I love working with you. This is incredible. God is in this place. Um, I can't wait to see what God does at Forefront, all this. And then I get emails back from them. And the first staff member who shall remain nameless was like, I didn't feel that way at all. <laughs> and they were like, in fact, it was a really difficult Sunday, and you didn't do something I asked you to do, and I was super distracted the entire Sunday. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then another staff member wrote back and said, I second the first staff member. I was like, I was like, what's going on here? I was like, listen, I was like rainbows and unicorns, and these guys are over here. They're hurting. They're all, they're all upset. And you know what? You know, here's my first reaction to them is like, is like, they will not rain on my parade, right? That's like my first reaction. Like, I, like, the Spirit of the Lord is in this place. I don't care about them anymore. That's sort of how I felt. But the truth of the matter is, right, there's two different realities, two different cultures. I was treating them like they were a disruption, like an interruption. I think we do that from time to time. When the reality that we have is not the reality someone else has, they become an interruption or a disruption or, or whatever it might be. We want to forget about it. Now, because it's my staff, they never let me forget about anything. So we did talk it out. But don't we do that, right? If our reality is different from another reality, that other reality gets dismissed. Um, think about when you're in school. Teacher's like giving you an assignment. You're sort of excited about it. And then the teacher's like, everybody got it, right? And you're sitting there, you're like, oh, I got it. And then what? One kid raises his hand. He's like, I don't get it. Right? You're like, dang it. Like, let's just get started. Has that ever happened to any of you guys? Or are you the one kid raising your hand? <laughs> Who is it? That's like, you know, the realities are different. That kid's a disruption. I think about... Um, you know, the way things change when you have a friendship and the friendship is, is going really well and you're at the point where you're ready to, you know, ask that person to help you move. You know, it's like that good of a friendship. And then they're like, they're like ah, I don't think we're quite there yet. And next thing you know, you're like, oh, man, my reality is not their reality. That's a disruption. They'll come around. They'll come to see my reality the way it is. And I think it happens in more serious ways. There's so many families here at this church. And frankly, I think we're so family-focused, and it's a really wonderful thing, and it's something to celebrate, but it's our reality, and that's a reality that um, we, we are in. So we're not thinking very much about the people who are single and living the dream in New York City. And the people who are single and living the dream in New York City aren't thinking about, like, the one toddler crawling on your face at 4.45 a.m. and the other one that wants breakfast, you know, at 4.50, right? We're not thinking about that stuff. Those are not our realities. So we tend to dismiss them. They tend to be disrupted realities. So do you understand this disrupted realities? If you think for a minute about you being in one place and somebody being in a completely different place, we tend to say, well, that's, that's them, that's them. I might try to be a little sympathetic. I might try to have some empathy, but that's, that's them. Now, if you can understand that, you can understand Ecclesiastes. Okay? We are in Ecclesiastes. I say this all of the time. The Bible is alive. This Ecclesiastes, has anybody been reading it outside of church on Sunday? Please tell me yes. Thank you. Thank you. Because this thing is like, it's crazy. It confounds me. It's challenging me. Um, I'm learning so much about it. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of what I learned this past week about Ecclesiastes that I didn't know. Uh, it was written in 250 B.C. Okay, we pretty much know that for certain, all right? A lot of times people thought it was written by King Solomon. Probably not. Uh, and it's really interesting that it was written in 250 B.C. because 250 B.C. is right around the time that there was this really exciting new kind of thought that was coming from the Greek culture. 
It was called Epicureanism. Have you ever heard of being an Epicurean? Anybody? Some of us are hearkening back to our college days. Okay? And if you were an Epicurean, you believed that, that, that attaining happiness was a really simple thing to do. In fact, I'll read you the, the basics of Epicurean philosophy. So says, Epicurean thought teaches that the greatest good is to seek modest pleasures in order to attain a state of tranquility, freedom from fear, and absence from bodily pain. The state of tranquility could be obtained through the knowledge of the workings of the world and the limiting of desires. Thus, pleasure was to be obtained by knowledge, friendship, and living a virtuous and temperate life. And if you notice, our slides are slightly off. Just, you might get a word or two cut off. My apologies, everyone. I did it. Um, all right, so what does it mean to be happy? In, Greek, in Western Greek thought, what does it mean to be happy? To be happy means we live a virtuous life. It means we live a life where we're curious. And it means we live a life where we have friends. Are you guys unhappy? If so, friends, knowledge, virtue. Go. Be happy again. Right? That's what they were basically saying. And so then you get this writer in Ecclesiastes who's living during that time who comes along and he goes, your virtue is ridiculous. It's all vapor. You're still going to die. And then he goes, friends only help you spend money. Why would you even need money? It's all meaningless anyway. And he goes, you know, the knowledge, I've had all the knowledge in the world, and it doesn't help me. It's meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. The writer of Ecclesiastes looks at this Western thought, this Epicurean thought, this, this Greek thought that everybody's doing. And he goes, your reality is crazy, all right? Your reality is, is you are not living in reality. This is way too simple. Let me tell you what's real. And then he gets writing, right? And he says, so I hated life. Because the work done under the sun is grievous to me, all of it's meaningless. To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. This too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. I realize that people worked hard and try to succeed. They are jealous of each other. This too is useless, like chasing after the wind. This guy is going, no, no. Your Epicurean way of living is a disruption, and I will not let that happen. Because there's this whole other side of life. It's a whole other side of life that I think we understand. That no matter how much knowledge we have, there's still some struggle. No matter how much pain, I'm uh, sorry, how much how many, how many friends we have, there's still pain. No matter how virtuously that we live, there's still going to be issues that come up, things that bother us, things that give us that pit in our stomach, right? And the writer of Ecclesiastes is he's saying, don't discount that stuff. That stuff is not disruption, okay? That's actually good stuff where God lives. That's what he's saying. Raise your hand if you ever heard of Mother Teresa. Good. Mother Teresa, 1948, she founded an orphanage in Calcutta. She did that. 1979, because of all her humanitarian work, she got the Nobel Peace Prize. When she died in 2007, Mother Teresa uh, was uh, given sainthood, so now she's Saint Teresa. How many of us have used Mother Teresa in a conversation with somebody, like when somebody asks you to move? And you're like, who am I, Mother Teresa? How many people have done that? Raise, raise your hand if you've done it. Yeah, do it. I want to see who these people are. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because she's like this, uh, she's the example of like servitude, right? She's the example of like somebody who lives a Christ-like life. Well, when she died, they had all these letters, and they had this diary that she wrote. And in these letters... And in this diary, there were devastating words from Mother Teresa. Devastating. Here's what she wrote just three months before she won the Nobel Peace Prize. She wrote, Jesus has a very special love for you. But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great. I look and I do not see. I listen and I do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer, but he does not speak. 
I want you to pray for me that I let him have a free hand. Lord my God, who am I that you should forsake me? The child of your love now become the most hated one. The one you have thrown away as unwanted and unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. No one on whom I can cling. No, no one alone. Where is my faith? Even deep down right now, there is nothing. Emptiness, darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain. I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd my heart and make me suffer untold agony. This is three months before she wins a Nobel Peace Prize, and she's writing this in her diary. And people called it tragic. They said that this was tragedy, and the Catholic Church didn't want, um, they didn't want this to be made public. They were like, if we make this public, it's going to kill the church. It's going to hurt the church. Did you know that when Ecclesiastes came out in 250 BC, when everybody was all Epicurean, same, the rabbis were going, no, we can't make this a holy book. It cannot be made a holy book. It's going to kill the church. It's going to hurt the church. We want to look at this as a disruption. We want to look at this as something than other, something that we don't have to mess with. New atheists, they had an incredible field day with this. They were like, will you look at this? Take a look at this. Like Mother Teresa, she is like the best of the best, and she didn't believe, so that is pretty much proof of atheism. That's what they did, and they said all that. It was a tragedy. Her doubt, her pain, the fact that she didn't believe in God at certain times was a tragedy. I don't think that's a tragedy. I don't think that's a tragedy at all. You know what's a tragedy? You know what's more of a tragedy to me? These actual quotes from actual pastors today. These are actual quotes from actual pastors who must have, most of us would respect if we knew who they were. None of your circumstances may change, but if you change your attitude, everything can change. Yes, tell that to the kid who's burying his brother in Aleppo. Whether things are going great or you're just hanging on by a thread, things get more awesome with God at the center of your day. Maybe they do get a little bit awesome with God at the center of your day, but hey, I just, you know, I just got an email that says I lost my job, so I'm hanging by, but you know, things are going to get awesome. God's at the center of my day. This week, replace the habit of unhappiness with the habit of happiness. You want to talk about Epicurean Christianity? Again, from pastors who I think we all respect. This is a tragedy. The tragedy is that we forsake the difficult parts of our lives as being interruptions, as being disruptions, as being things that are not from God, when Ecclesiastes tells us the exact opposite. Ecclesiastes says when there's doubt, when there is pain, when you get that email that gives you that terrible pit in your stomach, when you are worried sick for a friend, when you are not able to have children, when, when you want to get married and it's not working, when you are dead tired and your baby won't stop crying, these are not disruptions. These are the important parts of life. God is at work in these parts. Do not, do not cast them away. Do not say, well, if I just change my attitude, things will get more awesome, whatever it might be. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes knew. The writer of Ecclesiastes knew that this Epicurean thought, the, the simple, I'm just going to be happy and everything's going to be all right, does not work. But the writer of Ecclesiastes, he knew that there was something greater going on here. And so this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. He says, all of it's meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. It's all meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. It's useless. It's like chasing the wind. And then it's like the writer of Ecclesiastes sort of comes to this place of wisdom. And when he comes to this place of wisdom, towards the end of the book, he sort of starts saying some different things. He says, you don't know where the wind will blow. 
You don't know how a body grows inside the mother in the same way you don't know what God is doing or how he created everything. Soon your life will snap like a silver chain or break like a golden bowl. You'll be like a broken pitcher at a spring or a broken wheel at a well. You will turn back into dust of the earth and again, but your spirit, your spirit will return to God who gave it. Now the word wind in this situation, in this case, is the same as the word spirit. It's ruach, ruach, that's the name of the word. And what is ruach? I'm going to do my best to explain this word. Chasing ruach, chasing ruach, your spirit ruach, okay, that's the word. Um, you ever have one of those moments? We talked about them. The seemingly ordinary moments that all of a sudden become extraordinary, that's Ruach. So, uh, I don't know, I, was in, I just became a pastor, it was like 2009, and I walked, went to this bar, and there was a singer-songwriter playing, and I just was sitting there, and the song was playing, and I thought the songwriter was great, and I looked around, and I was hit by something. I don't know what it was, but I was like, these are God's people, and like, this is a form of worship, and I was like, amazed by it amazed by it. That's, that's Ruach. That's it. Um, I was riding my bike in Moab with four other guys and all of a sudden at the same time we just stopped. And we all stop at the same time and we all look and on one side uh, of where we're riding and on the other side of where we're riding um, are two cliffs and we realize that we're riding on a ridge and when you look down, you look down into the most beautiful canyon and one of my buddies just goes whoa. That is Ruach. When you hold a newborn baby, you ever hold a newborn baby? Ruach. That's Ruach. Right? That's what it is. You ever sit there and, and you're at a bar or maybe somewhere else and all of a sudden you have this incredible conversation with somebody you never thought you'd have that kind of conversation with and you walk away feeling like the best you've ever felt. You ever have that happen? That's Ruach. That's it. Here's what one of my commentaries says about it. Ancient Hebrews turn out have a, had a way of talking about these experiences we've all had. These moments when we become aware that there's more going on here. Moments when an object or a gesture or a word or event is what it is, and yet it points to beyond itself. They believe that everything you and I know to be everything that is, that is existence, because of it, I'm not reading this well, because of an explosive, expansive, surprising, creative energy that surges through all things, holding everything all together, and giving the universe its life and depth and fullness. They call this the cosmic electricity, the expressed power, the divine energy, the Ruach of God. So now you look back at those wind passages. And every time, every time the writer says, he says, you know, you're talking about the wind. He's not talking about the wind. He's talking about the essence of God. So the writer says, fame and power are useless. You're just trying to chase the essence of God. Or struggling for fame and fortune is chasing the essence of God. Or these things are chasing the essence of God, but where is the essence of God? Where is it? Well, you don't know where the essence of God will come or go, and you don't know how a baby grows inside its mother in the same way you don't know what God is doing. And finally, you will turn back to the dust of the earth again, but your spirit, the essence that God has given you, returns to God. There's reconciliation. What this writer is trying to say is the parts of life that we consider disruptions, the difficulties, the Mother Teresa doubting and I'm in pain and I don't think that God is around, that is when Ruach is happening. That is when the essence of God is within us, moving in us, moving around us, making things right in us. So take a second to think about what pain you have right now. Perhaps it's the pain of sneezing. Perhaps it's pain of, um, there's an anxiety over something, like a really terrible anxiety you have over something. Maybe you don't believe, and you just come to church for community. It's a struggle. 
Maybe right now your family is really difficult. You have kids who are young. Maybe right now you are worried about someone, whatever it is. That is not a disruption. Now is not the time to say, you know what, I'm just going to change my attitude. Now is the time to understand the rock of God is at work in your life, in that pain and that anxiety and that doubt and that disruption. And that God is making things whole. That's what the rock of God does. The rock of God allows someone like Mother Teresa to write this letter shortly after she receives her Nobel Peace Prize. She says, I can't express in words the gratitude I owe you. She's writing to her friend. For, the, for your kindness to me, for the first time in years, I've come to love the darkness. I believe now that it is a part of a very, very small part of Jesus, of Jesus' own darkness and pain on earth. You've taught me to accept it as a spiritual side of your work, and you wrote, Today, really, I feel a deep joy that Jesus can't go anymore through the agony, but that he wants to go through it with me. That's the Ruach of God. That is the essence of God, that in our pain, in that, it's not a disruption to be let go of. It's a time we say, God, Jesus wants to go through this with me. It is a point of worship, right? I think this is a point of worship in the sense that Mother Teresa remembers the words that Jesus says when he says, lay down your cross, or take up your cross and follow me, or forsake your mother and your father, leave them and follow me, right? Those are the words he says. He doesn't say, hey, change your unhappiness to happiness and follow me. He doesn't say, hey, you might be hanging by a thread, but I'm pretty awesome, This is Christianity. This is spirituality. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes told. This matters. The rock of God is working in our pain and our doubts and in our hurts. So what does this mean for us as a church? We are a church that has a just and generous expression of the Christian faith. And if we are to have a just and generous expression of the Christian faith, it means that we are acknowledging over and over and over again the pains of others. It means we're not calling them disruptions. It means we're seeing that and then we're encouraging. We're saying, but the rock of God is in you. That essence of God is working in you. That essence of God is restoring you. And the way that you are working right now isn't going to be the way you're working 10 years from now. It's going to feel very different. If we're going to be a church that lives out our values, and our values are uh, diversity and generosity and community and humility, that means we're going to be diverse and diverse in the sense where we recognize each other's experiences. We recognize that some are going to be great and others are going to be difficult. We recognize that some are going to be single, some are going to be married. We recognize that all this is, is... different and instead of saying well that's them over there and that's us over here we come together we share in those experiences together <clears throat> together that is the rock of god the essence of god working in our church whenever we do anything as a community or give uh, out, out of our you know finances and out of our resources towards generosity we are participating in allowing others to experience the rock the essence of god this is what we get to do as a church as a church we don't see the pain and the doubt and the hurt and the struggle and the anxiety as a disruption. It is not. It is an opportunity for the essence of God to work within us. And right now, we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate Jesus Christ who shows up. And what does Jesus Christ do? He says, hey, everybody, life gets a little bit more awesome when I'm here. He says, come follow me. Come on. Follow me as I help refugees and poor people. Follow me as people spit on me and, and want to kill me. Follow me as I take care of the leper and the bleeding woman. Follow me as those who don't believe, believe. Follow me. This is the rock of God. Follow me into death. That's the rock of God. 
And the rock of God, the essence of God, says that death never wins. Death doesn't get the last word. The rock of God, the essence of God, is at work even in death to the point where we celebrate the resurrection. So once again, I'll ask you, close your eyes for me. I'll ask you this. What is it that's going on in your life? You don't have to answer. I have stuff in my own life right now, preaching to myself, that feels like this is a disruption. I just wish it would end. I just need it to be over. What is it? It's not a disruption. It's the essence of God at work in your life. It is Ruach in your life. Embrace it. Tell others about it. Work with it. I believe God is with us and around us, beside us, present with, with us in every moment. The question, the art, the task, the search, the challenge, the invitation is for you and me to become more and more the kind of people and the kind of church who are aware of the divine presence, attuned to the Ruach, present to the depths of each and every moment, seeing God in more and more and more people and places and events in our lives every single day. Amen.